This week at Hope Point. A rejoicing people, a gentle people, are promised what the world, I would argue, clamors for most. What is the world seeking most? It is peace. And that is offered to us. He says, this peace is so unexplainable, it's beyond human comprehension. It's beyond human reason. You can't put it into words. This supernatural peace will guard your heart and your mind. And what's amazing is that this guard stands watch, stands guard over two territories in us that create worry. This guard of peace stands over our heart, which generates wrong feelings. This guard stands watch over our mind, which generates wrong thinking. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Dan speaks to us from God's holy word. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. These are the opening words in our text this morning. In Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Now, what always boggles my mind as I read this epistle is how someone inside a prison who is experiencing so much affliction and hardship has the audacity to tell those outside the prison to rejoice. It would be one thing if Paul was writing this letter from the pristine beaches of the Mediterranean, kicking back, sipping a drink, maybe disconnected from pain and suffering, and encouraging those believers far off, hey guys, just, just rejoice. But this simply isn't the case. This letter was penned underground in a dark, damp prison cell where all manner of discomfort and pain existed. Now remember, this is the great Apostle Paul, the, perhaps the greatest missionary the church had ever seen. He was a man on the go. Ambition was his middle name. His plan was to evangelize the world. He, he wanted to go far and wide, to go as far to the corners of the earth as he had strength to give the gospel message to anyone who had ears. But now he found himself stopped, confined. In fact, he was chained to a Roman guard. His crime was preaching Christ. His sentence, yet to be delivered, would it be death? Paul did not know as he wrote this, but here is what he did know. He wrote this in chapter one as an encouragement for us today. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now we'll see this morning that Paul's secret sauce to rising above these perilous circumstances is his deep-rooted joy in the Lord. In fact, if Paul was allowed one word, maybe one word to send to this floundering church that needed strength, 
one word of encouragement, most likely the word he would have transmission to them was the word rejoice. And here's what's fascinating. When you peek behind the curtain and see what is happening behind the scenes in Philippi, you come to the conclusion there is zero reason to rejoice. <laughs> Paul's in prison. The church is under attack. Some of its members, its key members, have deep relational strife with one another. Not only that, but this unity is finding its way creeping through the back door. Somehow, false teachers have crept in through the front door. And things seemingly couldn't get any worse. <laughs> That's bad. Yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with clanking chains and flickering candle light, the Apostle Paul pens some of the most inspirational, joy-saturated words in the entire Bible. And these are words, friends, that you and I need to hear today. 20 times he will use the word joy in this letter. 20 times. Now, what that reveals is that one of the most unshakable things about us as Christians should be our joy. But if we're being honest with one another, it's often the shakiest thing about us. We have to fight for joy. Joy does not come easy. Maybe for some of you this week, you have had to fight not just daily, but maybe hourly for this joy. And if we're being even more honest this morning, we sometimes feel like prisoners to the monsters that devour our joy. We can feel like prisoners to doubt. We can feel like prisoners to worry. We can feel chained to prison cells of addiction. We can feel trapped in prison, imprisoned to our smartphones. We can feel like prisoners to approval and pleasing other people. We can feel like prisoners to comfort, prisoners to fear, and yes, even prisoners to paralyzing anxiety. Not only do these monsters rob us of our joy, but they steal our inner peace and it makes us feel at times that rejoicing is so far off, it is actually impossible. So we need help this morning in the battle. I need help this morning in the trenches of warfare to help us fight for this joy that Paul is going to talk about this morning. And chapter four, where we will be looking, is like a field manual. You open it up and it is an encouragement for us, the church, today on how to stand firm in our faith with a joyful heart. And we're going to see Paul lay it out for us in the next few verses in this way. We stand firm by being a people who are rejoicing. We stand firm by being a gentle people. Kind of interesting. We stand firm by being a prayerful people in verses 6 through 7. So let's look again at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now, the first thing that we have to take in uh, with this verse is this is a command. 
This is not merely a suggestion from Paul. Hey, when you think about it, you might want to try rejoicing. No, he actually means rejoice always in the Lord. And just in case you forget, I'm going to say it one more time, rejoice. Now, I want to make a confession just from the (laughs) get-go, that as I was in my sermon preparations, I found great hope in this verse, but I also found great tension. (laughs) Um, As I was driving my daughter to school at the beginning of the week, thinking about this verse, how I was going to preach it and how much I loved it on Monday, I heard a throwing up in the back seat. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no. And as I'm making a U-turn home, frustrated, inconvenienced, now my day is shot. And then like dominoes in the family of six, everybody's dropping like flies with a stomach bug. My wife, most recent casualty. Um, So I really wrestled, guys, with this verse this week because the the words rejoice always really started bugging me. And in fact, I was, it's just been one of those weeks where I was tempted to actually preach another book of the Bible because I really wrestled with this text. And I'm like, man, so I got to come and preach on Sunday what I can't even live out (laughs) on Monday. So there's such great tension. But as I meditated on this text and as I really studied it to see what Paul was getting at, I realized I'd actually missed the point of these verses. I missed the two most important words in this text. He didn't say rejoice always. He did say rejoice in the Lord always. Paul never said rejoice always in your circumstances. At least for me, that's impossible. (laughs) But in our circumstances, whether good or whether bad, we have a choice. We can choose to fix our gaze vertically or horizontally. We can choose to look upward at Christ or horizontally at our present troubles. The choice is ours. So to fully get our hands around this text and to actually live it out, we have to understand and really embrace what it is we're rejoicing in. Think of a a big turkey feast. The centerpiece is the turkey. What is the centerpiece of this text? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This passage means that we are to rejoice in Jesus for what he has done in the past, how he is working in our lives in the present, and the glorious future that he has in store for us to come. Um, at the end of our driveway, we apparently have this really beautiful Japanese maple. And I say, um, I say apparently because the beginning of the week, I noticed an older couple that was hovering around our driveway taking pictures of this tree from all these different angles. And I'll be honest, I like... I did not notice that tree. I drove by it probably 50 million times without ever pausing and reflecting on the beauty of the tree. It took these old people taking a picture of my tree to realize that's a beautiful tree. 
that is a beautiful tree. Didn't take the time to even consider it. And like this tree, in essence, this is what Paul is telling us today, to pause, to slow down, and to behold the beauty of Christ, to look at him from all angles in scripture, how the Old Testament pointed to him as the rescuer who would come. In the New Testament, in Revelation, how Richard's been preaching through that book of the Bible, the the reigning king to rejoice in who he is. But this is all too easy for us to forget to be satisfied in Christ Because as you know, there are so many things, false satisfactions, false joys that are competing for our mind and our heart. Me and my son, I've been trying to read some missionary biographies with him. And one of those was the story of Corey Ten Boom. Maybe you've heard of her. She wrote this powerful book later in life called The Hiding Place. As a young girl in the Netherlands, her and her family were on mission to help rescue and harbor Jews that were fleeing the wrath of the Nazis, and they would hide them in their attic. Well, they were ratted out by some fellow friends, and they were carried off to a concentration camp. And she spent much time in the horrors of a concentration camp, and there was something that she said that just came off of the page. She said this, Look around and be distressed. Look inside and be depressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. So much of rejoicing involves looking. And Paul's strategy to strengthen the resolve of the floundering church in Philippi and to strengthen the resolve of church today is a strategy, not of an exit strategy. You can imagine the church in Philippi. Paul, we're ready to get out of here. Catch the last chopper and leave this place. Give us instructions how to escape. But his strategy is not an exit strategy. It is an upward strategy. It's an upward strategy for us to look past our present troubles and gaze at the person and work of Christ. To consider the sinlessness of Christ, to to relish the faithfulness of Christ, to hope in the obedience of Christ and the patience of Christ for a sinful people. Maybe you're here this morning, been a very trying week for you and you don't even have strength to look. Just wanna encourage you with the words from Psalm 34, the joy of of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice always in the Lord. Now, Paul will go on to show us that our joy should not just remain a vertical reality, but but that it should go horizontal, that it should trickle into every facet of our life and how we relate to those around us, especially those within the church. Now, the immediate context in chapter four is that there are two women, two key leaders who have deep relational conflict. And Paul's admonition to them is to preserve the unity of the church at all costs. And the admonition is the same for us today, to preserve unity in the church, but also to preserve our witness to a watching world. 
And he reveals how this can be accomplished, and he does it in somewhat of a strange way. In verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. One of the markers of a healthy, united church is how gentle the people of God are towards one another. How can a church who are always at odds with one another, always angry at one another, sheep that are biting each other always, how can we win a dying world who's in need of desperate gospel hope when we can't even get along? Now, this gentleness that Paul speaks of is comprehensive. It has to cover all the bases. He says, let it be evident to all. Let it be evident to all. A gentle people or a rejoicing people. This, this gentleness must be evident to those in the church, but also those outside the church. Our gentleness should extend to those, and this one stings, those on the other side of our political camp. Our gentleness should go to those who are an encouragement to us. Our gentleness should go into those who are discouraging to us. Our gentleness should even reach as far as those who have wronged us. To rejoice is to be gentle, and to be gentle is to rejoice. Now, you think of this word gentleness, it's somewhat of a hijacked word in our culture today. To be gentleness, or to be gentle, is often thought of as being weak, to be passive, or not to be bold, or not to stand when you need to stand in courage. But when I think about my life and, and some, of the, some of the boldest, strongest, manliest men that I know in my life are actually the most gentle men that I know. I just think of Matt Bandy. I don't know if he's here. Don't raise your hand, but um, I can probably see him. He's a gentle giant. I love this guy. You know, if the church ever did a church-wide tug of war, like, he, I want him on my side. <laughs> And what I love about this brother is he's so big and so strong, but it's harness strength. <laughs> and what bleeds out of this guy is just humility, gentleness, meekness. And when I talk to him and I'm around him, I actually experience Jesus because of how he talks and how gentle he is. And I think when I leave, man, I want to be more like this guy. So the call... For gentleness, for us today, is really a call to cultivate this posture of selflessness towards other people. How does this look? Being slow to anger. Speaking as a married man. <laughs> for the sake of others, putting another person above yourself. Being kind. Not retaliating when you're wronged being able to turn the other cheek, not always getting in the last word. And I think sometimes why gentleness, we're hesitant to be gentle is because when you think about gentleness, it's actually, it's kind of a risk because you're risking giving up control. You're risking not having the upper hand over someone in a relationship. And this is a painful question, but it's one we must ask. Think of those who are closest to you. Do they think of you as a gentle person? 
And if you're thinking, no, there's hope because we can look to Christ who was the ultimate model of gentleness. And what he said of himself, Dan Iacovello preached this message not long ago. The two words that Jesus used to describe the inner recesses of his very heart were these words in Matthew, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. Now, everyone loves a gentle Jesus. That's not offensive. Everyone admires this Jesus who would stoop down and lay down his rights, get low for the sake of sinners, get low for his disciples and wash their feet. But when the rubber meets the road, are we willing to be as gentle as Jesus? Are we willing to get low like our master? Paul in Philippians chapter two tells us that Christ emptied himself taking on the form of a leader, no, a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the execution tree of a Roman cross. That's the model of Christ. And in our text this morning, he says, let this be evident to all, evident which means that it shouldn't just be a cool idea we have in our head. Man, I just want to be gentle. What a great thought. Know that it should come out into our life. How we speak to people, how we respond to people. Again, going back to the story of Matt, just I, I sense Christ around this brother because of his gentle heart. So may we be a people marked by joy May we be a people marked by gentleness before a watching church and a watching world. But there's one more thing. May we also be a people who are aware of the proximity of Christ. At the end of verse five, kind of sandwiched in this text are four words you cannot miss and we shouldn't miss. I missed it. <laughs> but these words carry so much hope for us today, and it is this, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Are you aware of the nearness of Christ this morning? Do you know how close he is to you today? One of the tactics of the enemy, this is true in my own life, is to get us to believe that we are alone. To get us to think that Christ is so far off. I received a phone call just this morning. I almost didn't take it because I was about to get up on stage, but I did anyway. And it was a man, he's just crying out. He said, Pastor, I just I feel like God is so far away from me. He's been far for seven years. What do I do? He wants us to believe, the enemy wants us to believe that the farther we sink into sin, the more distant Jesus is from us and the farther he's gonna walk away from his Children couldn't be farther from the truth. We need to cling to this first today. David in Psalms said, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Have you ever been crushed in spirit? Zephaniah knew of this nearness when he, 
He said, the Lord your God is with you. His power gives you victory. He will sing over you and rejoice over you. Moses, in the middle of the desert, in the wilderness, called to his people, be strong, be courageous. Don't be afraid. The Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you and never forsake you. And Christ Jesus himself, our master of salvation in before his ascension, comforted his disciples with these words by saying, surely, surely, and you know how this ends, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never forget this story I heard of a mountaineer who was trying to uh, uh, climb a high peak in the Himalayas. The rope that he was holding onto with other climbers slipped through his grasp. He lost his footing, the, the crampons, these ice spikes in the ground, in the glacier, and he began careening down the side of this glacier at a very rapid speed. And all of a sudden, when not able to stop, he disappeared into a deep crevasse, a deep opening in the ice. He survived the fall of several feet but he became paralyzed when he came to, paralyzed with fear that he was all alone. He said it was like being trapped in a, in a, in a death chamber of ice, complete darkness. At one point, hopes of the summit. Next point, hopes of death, because that's all he was experiencing. And before he gave up hope, the last straw, something happened. He heard the sound of an ice axe, which seemed like an eternity later, digging into the ice. He heard the sound of crampons kicking in to the ice. He heard the sound of his friends talking. He saw the flickering of a headlamp in the distance coming down. And he said, as, as the voices got nearer, his heart reassured him more and more he was going to be rescued. <laughs> what a beautiful picture of what Christ is doing today. He is near. His DNA, his inner heart, it cannot be held back from his people. You might feel like that. He's so distant. He can't hold himself back. He didn't stand on the brink of the ice and look down and give us a motivational speech on how to get out of the peril we were in. Now, what you need to do is, now, he got down in with us. Christ climbed down to go into our darkness, into our despair, bringing light to us when there seemed to be nothing but gloom and darkness in our pain, sitting with us at the bottom of the ice chamber. Jesus Christ, who is known as a friend of sinners, our rescuer, he is near. He's near to you today. And because of the close proximity of our Savior, we can stand firm in hope because we have full access now as Christians to run to him in prayer. In verse six, we read these words, 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is telling us that to stand firm, we must cultivate a life of prayer at all times and in all things. And he uses three words to describe proper praying. Prayer, bring our request to God, big or small. Which in turn is a way of adoration, adoring God for who he is. Not only that, by proper playing, praying involves pleading, which is desperation. This is the, the inner, deep, heartfelt confession to the Lord. It also involves thanksgiving, which is appreciation, which is also a remedy for our inner discontentment. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Being able to look back and remember the faithfulness of Christ. So in verse five, Paul's already shown us that what God wants us to give other people is our gentleness. But right here in verse six, he wants us to give him our grief and our grievances. If we can lay out our brokenness, give God our heart of pain, we are much more likely to be gentle to other people. But so much of the time, what do we do? We flip it around. <laughs> this is true of me. We get it backwards. We give God our gentleness and we give others our grievances. <laughs> we pray nice, tidy, gentle prayers to God. And to others, and usually those closest to us, we unload our troubles, our anger, our grievances, our pain, and unload them on others. When God is saying, start with me, give me everything you got. I am big enough to handle your deepest doubt. Like the man who called this morning, God, I'm doubting the Lord's existence. He can handle that. I can handle your deepest, darkest laments. It is so easy for us to sanitize and to clean up our prayers. Spurgeon, a man of sorrows himself, said it this way, do not reckon you have prayed unless you have pleaded. For pleading is the very marrow of prayer. Now, maybe you're here this morning new in the faith. Maybe you've journeyed long with Christ and you're wondering, do I have, do I have permission to, to pray and plead to God? Do I, do I have that right to to do that, and I'd encourage you to, to just open the book of Psalms. <laughs> the prayers in Psalms are some of the, the deepest desperate prayers ever prayed from human lips. I have yet to actually find a half-hearted prayer in Psalms. <laughs> One of the prayers that has always jumped out at me is Psalm 70, verse 5, and I've actually prayed this in my own life. This is a cry of distress, of a flare 
that is shot up from somebody who is in absolute desperation, like a, like a drowning swimmer caught in a rip current. But I'm afflicted and needy. Now, God, when you get a minute, could you please, no, what does he say? <laughs> Hurry, help me, God. Come right now, not tomorrow, not come now. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You're my help, you're my savior. Oh, Lord, do not delay. Hurry. <laughs> wow. We see in Hebrews a, a powerful scene of our Lord and how he prayed. And I, 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 I didn't, I'd never seen this in all my life as a believer. I, I just skipped this verse, I guess. He said in Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud cries, loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior. I'll never forget the, the time that we first took our students, our student ministry to the city of Seattle on the mission trip. <laughs> And um, the, the Lord did so many amazing things on that trip, uh, but I'll never forget driving through this beautiful city. We were in two 15-passenger vans full of um, loud teenagers. I would not recommend it. <laughs> not for the faint of heart, still recovering a little bit from that. No, Dan and some others <laughs> were with me on that. But as we're driving through this city, cutting through the noise of what's going on in the back seats, in the middle of nowhere, was this man standing in the middle of the street. And he was holding a cardboard sign. And etched in Sharpie on this sign were these words, and I'll never forget them. Absolute desperation. We're in Seattle, the prettiest city I've ever been in. Wealthy, affluent, absolute desperation, this man. Now, I've seen in my time a lot of homeless people holding a lot of different cardboard signs, but something about this man and the look upon his face and his sign, I'll never forget it. Absolute desperation. It got me thinking about us as believers. Are we a desperate people? Are we desperate for the Lord? Are we desperate for help? A guy after the first service came up to me and said, man, I just, I want to stay there. I want to stay in absolute desperation. And one of the greatest threats, I think, to our Christian life is, is our self-reliance. Man, I got this. Well, if, I guess I'll pray about it. <laughs> you know, would we ever wear a sign, hold a sign that says absolute desperation? Man, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. When deep down, no, no you're not. <laughs> and for the people of God to know that's okay. Man, how can I pray for you? This is a call to give up putting on a mask, but it's a call to be desperate before God and let our desperateness be known by others so we can pray. And as we consider again verse six, I think it's interesting how the Apostle Paul uses the word anxious. He begins it that way. 
The word anxiety in the old English, the root word, worry, anxiety, literally means to strangle. That's the concept here. Now, Paul could have inserted a number of different words here. Do not be angry about anything, for example. But why did he choose to not be anxious about anything? And I, I feel he, he chose that strategically because Paul knew the strangling effect that anxiety has on the believers. Now, you might be thinking up to this point, the apostle Paul is bulletproof. Man, he is in the bottom of this prison, jumping for joy, clanging on the wall, jump for joy, re rejoice. But if anybody knew the, the crippling, strangling effect of anxiety, it was Paul. Listen how he says this in 2 Corinthians. He, he just shares with the church just his track record of misery. In chapter one, he said, for we are not unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Maybe you've been there. Five times, different uh, le Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes with the whip. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent days at sea adrift. I was on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, my goodness, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Get the theme here? <laughs> danger at sea, dangers from false believers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure. And apart from all of these, listen to this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is quite a list of trials, but what tops his list is his anxiety. It was a real thing. Now, I love that Paul here is not just saying in a casual way, hey, just, just stop being anxious. Give it, give it, you know, just, just quit, just stop. No, he tells us what to do with our anxiety and he's gonna show us a massive promise that awaits us when we give it to the Lord in prayer. In everything, by pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And guys, here's the promise for us today. Verse seven and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Wow. A rejoicing people, a gentle people, are promised what the world, I would argue, clamors for most. What is the world seeking most? It is peace. And that is offered to us. He says, this peace is so unexplainable, it's beyond human comprehension. It's beyond human reason. You can't put it into words. This supernatural peace will guard your heart and your mind. The word guard is, the Greek for that is this idea of a strong walled fortress protecting a people from the enemy. And if anybody knew anything about a guard, it was Paul. He was chained to one <laughs> while he was writing these words. And what's amazing is that this guard 
stands watch, stands guard over two territories in us that create worry. This guard of peace stands over our heart, which generates wrong feelings. This guard stands watch over our mind, which generates wrong thinking. That is amazing, but it gets even better. It doesn't stop there. We have another guard. It says at the end of verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. All of that is bound up around the guardian of Christ himself. Jesus, our protector and our guardian, which caused Martin Luther to sing, a mighty fortress is our God. And I love how Warren Wearsby, the great commentator, goes back to the story of Daniel in the Old Testament and how God gave this man of God inexplicable peace. And we know the story from our Sunday school lessons. The king made a decree that anybody who prays outside of him, anybody that prays to somebody else except him, will be thrown into a den of lions, will be torn to shreds. Now, when the king announced this decree, Daniel, who was probably 90, an old man at this time, what did he do? He went up to his room. He opened his windows, and this is what we see him doing. He got down on his knees. He prayed. He gave thanks to God, just as he had done before. And this man, the group of men came in, and what did they find? They found Daniel pleading and imploring his God. Prayer, pleading, thanksgiving. And the result was perfect peace in the middle of difficulty. Love how he says it this way, Daniel was able to spend the night with lions in perfect peace while the king in his lavish palace could not sleep at all. Do you know the peace of Christ today that is offered to you? This peace that surpasses all understanding. In closing, I just want to share a brief story of a time when the Lord was gracious to me and he allowed me to experience the supernatural peace in a time in my life when I needed it most. I was being wheeled down a long corridor in a hospital in Bozeman, Montana. I had went through a horrific car accident many days before. A car accident that still today, my brother, Jeremy, who's, who's here with us, in a wheelchair, brain injury. But 13 times I was uh, operated on. 13 times I had to go under anesthesia for my broken body. And I remember the surgeon, Dr. Olds, came to me and he said, your ticket out of this hospital is we have to change your dressings and we want to do this without the use of anesthesia. And he was a gruff guy. I mean, he didn't, he didn't sugarcoat. He said, this is really going to hurt. This is going to be very painful, but we're going to try to work fast. Now, he could have told me the day of, but he told me the day before. So you can imagine just every thought in my mind 
you know, kind of thinking like I'm in the Civil War and here's a bullet to bite on. I mean, like I just, all these thoughts of what was about to happen to me. But I'm going down, being wheeled down this corridor. I still just picture the lights going down this. And a team of nurses was now around my bed. The moment of truth had arrived. Every deep thought of just anxiety crippling me. But I was on my back. All I could do was look up. And I'm going to tell you what I saw. But before I tell you, I want to rewind the tape a little bit. One of my nurses who was with me over the course of about 30 days in the ICU. She was not a believer, but she was assigned to my room and cared for me. And as she came in and out of my room during these dark days in the hospital, there was so much joy on that floor of the ICU. So many people had come to visit me. Friends flew out from South Carolina to come. Bible verses were everywhere. She, she didn't know the joy of Christ. This was a mysterious place. People are singing songs. There's so much provision that the Lord provided. In fact, um, the guys that were involved in the car accident, me, two other brothers, and a friend, my brothers, we all, we all grew up in Calpen, South Carolina. Someone called this lady who lived in Bozeman and said, have you heard the story? Have you read the paper? There were three boys from Calpens who were in a car accident. She lived in Bozeman. <laughs> Not only that, she lived on the road that we grew up on. So she comes to the hospital, opens up her beautiful ranch-style house in the middle of the mountains for my family to find rescue and retreat during this time. And this nurse just stood on the fringes and is watching the joy that is just taking place in my hospital room. And what she did is she went out and she, she had a verse made for me, Psalm 91. And she had it made in a nice poster and she, she taped it up on the ceiling in the operating room. So as I'm looking up, again, she's not even a Christian but she knew it would give me strength. And this nurse, I hadn't seen her since that, those days, but a friend told me that she eventually gave her life to Christ later and actually passed away a couple years ago. But there is Psalm 91 staring down at me. <laughs> And as I was being worked on with gritted teeth, they actually did have to stop the operation. I was in too much pain, but I was able to rejoice in this moment. And I just, I, rem I never forget reading these words. He will cover you with his feathers. He'll shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow flies by the day. And as I'm looking at this verse, I felt this unexplainable peace. I felt it just trickle through every cell of my body and I've never experienced the closeness of Christ like I did that day. So you see this morning, friends, rejoicing doesn't always mean a smiling face or hands raised or singing, rejoicing can be gritted teeth and trembling hands 
while you wrestle to trust in His good promises, while you wrestle to hold on to His faithful hand as He holds yours in the storm. So this morning, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.